Hey, I'm Ty Snaith, and this is A World of One's Own, a series of conversations with women and non-binary artists I respect and admire. The episode you're about to listen to is from Season 1, which was originally called A World of Her Own. It was part of the exhibition Unfinished Business, Perspectives on Art and Feminism at ACCA. For more information about the podcast and the artists I'm speaking to in Season 2, head to tysnaith.com. And now, here's the episode. You know, just that thing of having to get up, go out there, the lights go down, there's that hush, the curtain opens, that, you know, I'm mm. talking in cliches, and you are the one. You're, you have to walk out there and be interesting. Hi, I'm Ty Snaith, and this is A World of Her Own a series of conversations with Australian women artists I respect and admire. Today, I'm stepping into the spotlight with actor, director and performer Maud Davey. For a woman who just recently performed her own retrospective called My Life in the Nude, and yes, the entire show was in the nude, Maud has an incredible humility and tempered insight into the world of physical performance. In our chat, we touch on many aspects of what it means to put yourself as an artist in front of an audience and what Maud calls the assault of the gaze. How we're all disposable to the scary publicity monster and how we learn to deal with the urge to bite the hand that feeds. With an inspiring career spanning TV, theatre, cabaret, burlesque and more recently, weird but hilarious post-apocalyptic performance art, Maud is like some kind of queen of the underground stage and the guru of finding yourself exposed. So firstly, I guess the title of this project, A World of Her Own, was derived from Virginia Woolf's essay, uh, A Room of One's Own. And I started thinking about how back then it was maybe a room that was important to be a woman and make art, but now we've sort of moved on and we almost have to create our own worlds in which to move in and work in. Does that, does that ring true to you? Do you? How do you feel about that idea? I connect with the Virginia Woolf because space is a, a luxury, both, you know, time, sp- space to be, space to reflect space on your own, but also physical space and I'm a performance artist and space is incredibly important yeah sorry I should have said that (laughs) you're a performance maker yeah writer director yeah Yeah. Mm. and so space I began to understand it when I when I go back to spaces so usually I have a, a a space a physical space in my in mind when I'm dreaming the work Mm. So I, it's, it's as if I make work for a particular physical space yeah. and relationship with the audience. And that space changes according to where I am and what I'm doing. But I went back, I worked in Adelaide for five years in a particular space in um, the old Waterside Workers Hall down in Port Adelaide. And after I left that job, I went back a number of times and was a guest artist uh, in that space. And I realised how fundamentally, how fundamental space is to my work and how 
amazing it would be to work in one space, mm. like how deep your work would become because of your understanding, because of the accumulation of in you of your understanding of that space and the way it works mm. for a viewer and for an artist. So let me put this to you, and I guess this is how I'm thinking of space. It's not physical space, but but the space that you take up or your practice takes mm. up in the art landscape. So mm. in the, the theatre and mm. I guess you're in the sort of physical performance, mm. cabaret, theatre world, mm. what space you take up as a, not a personality, but your, your practice, that space, you know, have you mm. had to carve that space or... Um, yeah, and that's that's a really hard thing to talk about because it, about because it's something that you don't often think about. It's something that I don't often think about. Uh, I feel like um, it's also a space that needs to be continually remade. Yeah, there's never a moment where you go, okay, done that work. <laughs> yep. Now I've got my space, and now I can just make work. It feels like you one is continually carving out space, battling. A sort of the publicity monster, yeah, which chews things up and spits them out and moves on, moves on to moves the new on. thing, yeah, yeah, and which forgets mm. just oh my god, one is so disposable as an artist. Mm. Do you think that's even harder for a woman, or do you think it's the same for men? I don't, I think that's that might be the same. Mm. There are different things that are that are hard what is harder for a woman than for a man I don't know well just I mean I think about how getting that space in the first place like Mm. to say put on your first show Mm. or to um, get funding or whatever Mm. step of the Mm. you know process Mm. it's sort of you've got to reprove that every time Mm. but do you you have to um you know both reference your past work but then come up with something new each time mm. and how does that work as you as you get older and you have like a life before you do you feel like you have to be that person that was right at the start you know how do you do that how do you cuz you change obviously mm. throughout your whole life mm. and you you get known for what you did mm. early mm. on how does that work with you but nobody remembers what i did early on now you know <laughs> when we started out when i worked with group different groups of women and we made shows in which women were the centre of the narrative, and that was unusual. Mm, wow, that's wow. so different now, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> and but also we were also interested in um, instead of the story being one day he'll come along, <laughs> yeah. the man I love, and he'll be big and strong. You know, it's the Bechdel test or whatever it's called. Yes. The, the, Instead of doing that work, which is fundamentally about woman as... Waiting. Yeah. yeah. We would do work which reflected our lives without men because mm. there are, there are, there's a lot of it. A lot of our lives are, are about our relationships with women, about our relationships with our, with our children and all of those kind of things. And those things just weren't out there, weren't out in the world. Was there an audience for that when you started doing that? An enormous audience for that at that time. There was a big second wave feminism. Mm. You know, this is, the, this is the late 80s. So people were hungry for yeah, that? Yeah, people were really... You put women on the poster, you got an audience. And do you think that's the same now? No, I don't. Interesting. Although it, it's sort of... You know, a few years ago, I started. We started saying, "Oh, feminism's back in back in fashion." Yeah, you know, again, women are back in fashion. 
wonder what that means. Well, you know, feminism did come back into fashion, mm. didn't it? Mm. Suddenly Beyonce's in front of... But interestingly, things like, I mean, in your world, things like burlesque very much came into fashion. Mm. And part of my problem that I had with that was that often burlesque was this thing where it was very much about women's bodies, mm. but not often about what they had to say. Yeah. And so from that point, you, I mean, you were very active in changing that mm. all the way I see it. Mm. Did, mm. did you consciously change that? Did you have a problem with burlesque? I never thought about what I did as burlesque. Yeah. Right. For the, actually, that, I mean, that's the truth. Um, mm. And I still have difficulty um, classifying my work as burlesque or calling myself a burlesque performer because mm. when you say mm. I'm a burlesque performer mm. it means something and it means something that I'm not that I don't relate to um and yet you were put into that world yeah. in a way and mm. the way that I saw you mm. what you did in that mm. world was to very much give those women a voice or to make it not necessarily what you were expecting mm. as a mm. burlesque mm. show which is now kind of a negative term you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was interesting because I felt like the na- the, the title comes after mm. and it never quite comfortably sits with what one does. You know, in the in the 90s we were doing cabaret. We mm. thought we were doing cabaret. Mm. And uh, it was weird, it was very queer, mm. it was um, it was for a queer audience generally, and it was Anyway, we called it cabaret, mm. and then cabaret became something that didn't describe what we did. Mm. You know, cabaret became very good singers yep. doing okay. the Eartha Kitt show, or and the... maybe not not naked. No, <laughs> no, not naked. <laughs> so, so in some ways, do you think there wasn't quite a world? There wasn't quite a world for you to like a traditional spot for you to go into. There never has been. Mm. But it's interesting because I've, I've made work in the 80s, the, the late 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, and the discourse around performance work is all about uh, provocation. It's all about um, anti-establishment. It's all about political. It's all about, you know, underground. It's all, all these words that you know, resistant, alternative, mm. all these words which dis- which describe a space that is made of, a, oh, we accidentally serve the ruling ideas. Mm-hmm. That's what it feels like. <laughs> it feels like we think we're being radical, yep. but actually what we're doing is taking up a space that's been allowed to the radical <laughs> in order that it is then incorporate within the the dominant the genteel life yeah. yeah so and that's and that's a really i think that's a really difficult thing within all arts is that you on one hand have to be breaking new ground mm. and you have to be doing something really risky mm. and we want to be doing that mm. but on the other hand you know you can't bite the hand that feeds mm. and so you need to be doing something that you know might slightly appeal to the right people yeah. or the right curators or the right mm. funders mm. and that's that sort of fine balance mm. but now interestingly there's things like you know people are looking for risk it's in a criteria or whatever so then once that's a um, mainstream criteria does that make you less you know does that make you still want to be risky 
How it makes me, it makes me really try and try and figure out what what they mean by risk <laughs> yeah. and how I can describe what I do as risk because mm. really all you have to do is just use their words mm. to describe your work and if you'd use their words to describe your work well enough <laughs> because Tick the boxes yeah because it doesn't feel like I make work I never feel like I'm being risky I don't feel like I risk anything in making work. I work in safe spaces. I work in uh, in, environ- in environments where the audience understands my work. What's going to happen to me? Mm. What is going to happen? Somebody's going to go, I hate your work. <laughs> I want my money back. Do they do that? Ever? So sometimes they yeah. do. And you go, really? Is mm. that really? Am I risking something? Mm. I'm not. I'm not risking anything. So do you see that as a failure if that happens or success? If somebody says that, that's really, really hard to bear. As a performance Mm. artist, I mean, I don't know what it's like for a visual artist, but I speak uh, sometimes about the assault of the gaze, the Mm. assault of the audience. And this is what I talked about when I was doing my retrospective, which was called My Life in the Nude, which was... a, a retrospective of all of the piece, not all, but the pieces that I'd done in that burlesque environment Um, and I talked about how when you're younger the audience's attention is more welcome Hmm. is less critical harsh Uh, it's not that their attention is harsh but their their attention is it's like an assault it's like it's like this energetic assault and just looking at your body, looking at you, them looking at you. Yeah. yeah. Them looking at you and expecting you to entertain them, yeah, right. to be interesting, to, you know, just that thing of having to get up, go out there, the lights go down, there's that hush, the curtain opens, That you know, I'm mm. talking in cliches, and you are the one. You're, you have to walk out there and be interesting and engaging and so if someone tells you they want their money back because that wasn't what i expected how do you deal with something like that um you have to talk to yourself i I have to talk uh, because i get very hurt by that kind of thing because the thing you know often the only person in the audience you see is the person who's not enjoying it you don't see the other people so i have to talk to myself a lot about seeing the other people about working to the room not to the person who's not enjoying it all of those things I'm much better at talking other people through that experience <laughs> than I am at actually having it. No, but I'm better at it now because I don't care as much now. I don't care as much whether everybody likes me. I don't. I know that everybody doesn't. Yeah. So doesn't, what have you got to lose? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, when you said it's it's easier for you to talk another performer through that mm. process, mm. It, in in that, I mean, I'm interested in other um, artists' perspectives on this. Is it easier for you to write about other people's work than about your own work? Much easier. What is that? I don't know. It's the same for everyone, isn't it? I think so. But it's also really hard. I, like I've been kind of venturing into the world of being a writer rather mm. than just writing for, for you know, short form, form work or writing stuff that I do. Mm. And the idea of having to write something which has intention, which makes meaning, which adds up to something. Mm. Oh, my God. So hard, isn't so it? So hard. Do you think that comes from maybe um, 
the difference between, you know, like a conscious mind and an unconscious mind. So working through something with your body or mm. instinct mm. or gut mm. feeling is quite different to writing about it um, yeah. critically or consciously. And yeah. those two things are quite hard to reconcile yeah. sometimes. Yeah. It's much easier when somebody else gives you the words to use Isn't and it? then you can. I find it much easier to write about something I'm going to make, I'm going to make, oh. rather than writing about something that I have made. Because because I don't care, I'm not invested. Mm-hmm. So you can go, I'm going to blah 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 this is what I'm going to do. And then that 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 piece brief. of writing, that brief, becomes something that actually feeds you right. and is some uh, it's something that you can check back on and all of those So um, that's your process? I, I often do that, mm. write what I'm going to do mm. and then I don't mean write the script, I mean I intend to make a piece which is. Yeah. I am interested in exploring these things. And then you go away and you explore things. And then you look back at the thing and you go, oh, my God, I did that. Because mm, you projected that. and yeah, then yeah. yeah. Yeah, I didn't know I was doing that, but I did it. Because one of the hardest things, I think, for all different types of artists mm. is that we're often not given a brief. We're mm. supposed to come up with the yeah. brief. And so if you're not very good at coming up with briefs, mm. then big part of the problem is really difficult, yeah. you know. Whereas, say, an architect or a designer, mm. given a client, and yeah. I always think, oh, lucky them yeah. like, to have a yeah. client. But on the other hand, do you really want a client that's like, actually, what I'd like you to do is yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a little jump over there and yeah, then yeah. take that away. Boring. Yeah. But that writing of the brief is something that you don't, I mean, artists aren't really taught that to write mm. your own brief. You? It, but I, because I teach performance making mm. and I talk about, I talk to them a lot about what's your generative material, mm. what's your generative question or your generative statement because that's hard, that's hard thinking. Yeah. So I get them to do it for other people's work. Mm. What's the generative question of that work? That's What's the generative material? Can you identify what, what it might have been? Mm. And then I often get them to make a work from that, that. So they drill down into that. They go, I've seen that piece of work. Uh, now what's the generative material mm. there and now I'll make a work from that generative material. That's a great process. It's great. It's really good. And so I guess this is just on the theme of generative material. Mm. One of the things that I've been asking in these conversations about halfway through is what do you find most confronting about you? And does that generate part of your work? Yes. Um, Oh, that's interesting. I've just read uh, Anne Bogart, some essays on theatre that Anne Bogart wrote. She's talking about acting and directing and she talks that there's one chapter called Embarrassment and she talks about (laughs) how shame and self-consciousness is a big part of what makes art interesting, Mm -hmm. actually. And I have felt... There's a few. It's it's been a few years that I that I've been exploring this and identifying this. That shame is a big generative thing for me. Hmm. That if I'm ashamed of that, then there's probably there's probably something deep in there that other people will relate to. Hmm. And that's that's what I need. I need. I need immediate recognition. From the audience. Yeah, particularly mm. in short form work. You need them to get on board early and, you know, you need to get 
them to get on board fast. Mm. You need them to understand what they're getting, how to engage with it fast. And they don't necessarily need to in, to understand that consciously, mm. but you need to send out the hook early. So is that so that that's what you find most confronting about yourself is is those deep moments of shame that you can't shed or that are there or that you haven't worked through is that does that confront you or is it confronting that you want to work through that oh it's it, that it, that makes that makes work that makes the work confronting to make right yep um because it's so personal um no, because it's not necessarily – it is personal, but it doesn't ne- – that doesn't necessarily show. Mm. Like, uh, you know, I often work in the confessional mode. I had this experience. It made me feel these things. Mm. So that I, that notion of I mm. is really important, that first person. Yes. Because not everyone does that. No. no. Um, I often work in that, but in some ways I feel like that's a bit cheap. <laughs> and what I've been trying to do lately is – I'm trying to find ways to work to wake up unconscious mm-hmm. recognition and emotional travel mm. or semi-conscious rather than conscious because I feel like the confessional, it's easy. You it's, go, I suffered in this way yeah. and everybody who has suffered in a similar way goes, Me oh, too. Yeah. Uh, me too. It's so topical, isn't it? Mm, yeah. And so easy and so, and so easy. useless, really. But um, one thing, I mean, I've been reading a little bit about well, uh, some writing by Judith Butler lately, yeah. and she talks about that idea of the I or the we yeah. and how often we is harder but powerful as mm-hmm. well because mm-hmm. it's almost like you're all in it. Yeah. You're almost deciding it as you go along. Yeah. You're part of it rather than... Yeah. Well, that's... That's one of the interesting things that when I teach, because I teach a thing called intimate acts, and what, I, what I've been articulating in the last few weeks with the students who've just finished that course is a, a belief that art is a gift. This isn't always true, mm. but in, the, in these works I've been going, yeah, what's the gift that you're giving to the audience? Mm. What is the gift that I as an audience take away from your thing. And if there isn't a gift, then there's a feeling of dissatisfaction. There was one piece and I was invited to tell something. This is a piece that was made in the terms of the course and I'm just thinking about it now. Mm. I was invited to tell something and then the person told me something. And I felt not listened to. Really? That's what I felt. I felt like that person's story was the point of this and the invitation for me to speak was simply a mechanism by which that person got to the telling of their story. Mm. And I'm not sure how I'm going to talk about that, but I went, there's no gift for me in this. You know? That's a hard thing to hear, though, if you're the person trying to give a gift, isn't it? I yeah. mean, how do you, how did they respond to that? Oh, they haven't, I haven't, oh, I, I haven't articulated that mm. yet. I haven't spoken to that person about it yet. But that is a really common experience, isn't it? Definitely. Do yeah. you not go, yeah. oh, how many? All the time. Yeah. <laughs> how many times have I sat at a table, had a drink, walked down the blah, 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 and gone, I could be a robot. <laughs> 
just a receptacle. Yeah, you know, a, a, a receptacle. Yeah, yeah, exactly, a receptacle, something to dump stuff into. Yeah, but not everyone has the gift of the ability to give something and listen at the same time, yeah. or it's it's quite tricky for a lot of people to sort of give themselves over, mm. whether you're a visual artist or a mm. performance maker. Mm. But part of that is actually being completely open and vulnerable, mm. I think, mm. personally. And, mm. and and that's why I love performance mm. so much, even mm. though I'm not a performer. I love mm. performers. Mm. And I love writers as well because mm. it's part of it. You can see if it's not open and honest. Yeah, yeah. You can tell, and yeah. it's actually really boring. Yeah. But visual artists it's a bit different but still that gift is just like opening yourself up Mm. on stage Mm. or in your words Mm. is quite tricky it is tricky but there are ways to do it Mm. I mean every all we do is tell people stories share stories or something but there are you know I think of so many pieces in which Mm. that transaction is made you tell me a story I'll tell you a story Mm. and in which I don't feel like a receptacle Mm. in which I really feel like I've been heard and that we've exchanged something and I've gone away with the gift of the story that was told or Mm. with the gift of the experience that we had I just didn't in this one Mm. and I um and it's and that's an interesting thing. I'm learning that the less I care, mm. <laughs> yeah. the better the work is, or something. Yep. The less I, and that's actually not true. Mm. It's true, but it's not true because oh my god, I have to care deeply mm. about every little thing, and and about every image, and it has to come from a place of difficulty and <laughs> need and desire and shame and all of those things Mm. but the less I attach my the less I care about that person who's not enjoying it in the audience the less I care about is this right is this going to be accepted Mm. by the blood the less the more I more distance I can have it's a bit Buddhist isn't it the more I distance I this is not Mm. me this Mm. work this is the work Mm. I'm over here and I'm okay, actually. Mm. And if the work fails, that's because I didn't quite find the hook yeah. or the mechanism by which it can float. It's not about you failing as a exactly. person. Yeah, it's, yeah. Um, you know, that's, there's no, it's not a coincidence that the best-selling book at the moment is that book, you know, How to Give Less Fucks or oh, whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's like everyone yeah. wants to give less fucks yeah. and yet... It's a sort of like a catch-22, isn't mm. it? Because if you really care about something, you can't really give no fucks about yeah. it, can you? Because yeah. it's, it's your life. One final thing um, just before we wrap mm. up, Maud, and thank you so much for your time. I wanted to ask you, what keeps you awake at night? What do you worry about? I worry about how I'm going to get through December and January every year yeah. because there's no work in December <laughs> and January. I worry about paying the mortgage. I worry about what I will do in my old age. I love what I do. I love it best. I love to be at home and dream up work <laughs> and work on I, That's all I want to do. Yeah. And I have been lucky enough to... Be able to. To be able to (laughs) for so many years. But you have to remain current. Mm. You've just got to keep keep doing it and doing it and doing it. It's really... You're amazing at doing that. Oh, my God. It's really hard, though. It's really hard. It takes a lot out of... I just wonder how I can keep going 
And I wonder, what else would I do? <laughs> what I'm worried about ending up going, huh, can't even get a job at Aldi, you know? <laughs> I haven't tried for a job at Aldi. I have those skills. But, but a friend of mine who's, you know, an actor who's my age, yeah. confessed to me that she couldn't even get a job at Aldi as a checkout. And yet person. she has these incredible, incredible skills that skills. no one else in society has and, almost. And other administrative skills, has worked in major theatre companies, running departments, mm. etc. Mm. Uh, but she can't even get a job in Aldi. Mm. And I think, will that happen to me? Will I end up... Will I end up... You, can you imagine no, it? No, I know I can imagine it. But I, do you think it's worth younger artists or I mean I often think oh maybe I should have this backup plan going at the same time maybe I should have something else but then you're spending half your time doing that as well backup plans never no they they always become the thing the the full plan yeah 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 Yeah. so you've you really got to put all your eggs in one basket don't you yeah if if you want to be an artist there's not really much it's not like you can go oh down the track I'll be a producer or, yeah. or but, you, but then but, some people do don't they yeah but some people some people do and also if you can find a way to monetize your skills yeah the skills that you have i mean at the moment i'm teaching and i love teaching because yeah. i get to really mm. you know practice and think about what i do and all of those kind of things that's monetizing my skills yeah but it's, it's almost a dirty word often when you're at a certain point in your career where, you know, it's not you're supposed to be thinking about the pure ideas of making or mm. being caught in that moment of dreaming mm. and actually being there and doing mm. that. And yet, you know, the reality of our lives is that you also need to contribute to your family and you mm. need to and you need to think about what happens when your body can't do what... I yeah. mean, I think about that with my performer friends all the time. Yeah, yeah. What happens when your body can't do it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then do you just do it from your wheelchair? Well, there are great <laughs> performers in wheelchairs. Yeah. So that, and maybe is it about sort of changing that? I know there's another, a lot of performers I speak to have a big thing about age and that's something that keeps them awake at night. Not yeah. everyone. But um, is it about us changing the perception of what a, what a peak performer should look like or, a, or a, a, what a woman should look like on stage? You know, I know that there's, that's changing a lot. Yeah, it is changing. And the thing about that is... I think, because I think, oh, am I, I'm not past my peak. What do you mean? I'm, I'm in my peak. Yeah. I, you know, I'm making the most interesting work that I've ever made. Mm. Um, and people are still coming. Mm. And so I'm not, I don't feel, you know, I'm 54. Mm. I don't feel like I'm past my peak. I don't feel like I'm doing work which is let I feel like I'm doing better work than I've ever done yes I feel like my work is getting better and better yeah and I feel like I feel like um I I don't I I'm terrified that I'll wake up one day and I'll go oh my god they don't want to come anymore but I think that's just a construct like I think Mm. we're also taught really young as little girls that you have this sort of used by date mm. that is you know 30 or whatever mm. that you shouldn't you shouldn't wear a bikini after that mm. date or you shouldn't be you know on stage after 50 or whatever or that sexual yeah <laughs> yeah or talk about that or yeah, even yeah. insinuate that yeah but i think that's just all a construct yeah, yeah yeah and i think it is too and and perhaps it's also that people don't talk about it that often and so it's just sort of like this 
these weird all everyone has their own weird set of numbers yeah, yeah. that they're living to. Yeah. And yet when you go past that number it seems that it makes absolutely no yeah. difference at all. Yeah. I'd love to be still working when I'm 94. I hope so. That would be amazing. (laughs) I'm sure you will more. But, you know, burlesque performers, I started Mm. talking about, oh, I'm going to have to give up. And, you know, and then I looked at the the top burlesque performers in New York Mm. are all in their 40s. Mm. You know, um, Taylor Mac just came out bringing Mm. Tigger with him. And Tigger's, you know, neo-burlesque icon. Mm. I suspect that Tigger is... Heading towards fifty, if really? not hit it, mm. and you go. Who cares? Exactly. Who cares? No one cares. And gr- what great mm. performance! And and yeah, no, no one cares. And who's the person? Who's except our except exactly, us? Exactly. Exactly. And I think that revelation—it's sort of like, well, no one cares whether I go to the party, or no one cares mm. whether I'm. 40 or 50 or 60 and yeah. and actually sometimes for women in different fields of arts the older you are the more you're taken seriously mm. anyway mm. it's almost like the opposite now if you're mm. under 40 it's almost like oh you've got to prove yourself a bit mm. longer mm. but it's it's different in every realm but i think we create those own, our mm. own sort of what, what do we care about yeah um, I think we've reached the end of our little chat. I'd Lovely. like to say thanks so much, Maud. And um, any time you feel like coming around for another chat in yeah. the future. Great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, see you later. See ya. There's something about Maud's hard thinking that really makes me feel like I'm in the hands of a sage. The way she talks about shame and self-consciousness kind of made me tear up. I really love the way she breaks down the distinction between life and work when she says, this is not me, this is the work, and how she's learnt to protect her own self if that work might fail. Age is no kind of boundary or burden to this woman, and I look forward to seeing Maud on the stage, in the nude no doubt, in her 60s, 70s, 80s, and most likely her 90s. This conversation was recorded for the series A World of Her Own as part of the exhibition Unfinished Business, Perspectives on Art and Feminism at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. It was recorded by me, Ty Snaith. I'm an artist for those of you who don't know my work. If you liked exploring Maud's world with me today, you might like to delve into some other worlds by downloading more episodes directly from the ACCA website. Visit www.acca.melbourne where you'll find the World of Her Own link under Programs or from SoundCloud if you visit soundcloud.com forward slash acca underscore Melbourne. I used to be a portrait artist, used to capture people's likeness for a living. I'd like to give a big thanks to Beck Fari for audio post-production and Melbourne musician Fear, spelt P-H-I-A, for letting us use the track you're listening to, End of the Day, from her album The Ocean of Everything. Thanks for listening to this episode from Season 1. The podcast now lives at tysnaith.com, so head over there for more information about the show and the artists I'm speaking to in Season 2. And thanks again to Acker for all their support with Season 1.